Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Places of Honor. It's based upon the lectionary readings for September 1st, 2019. Jesus wasn't known for his politeness around the dinner table. Though the Gospels record him receiving and accepting many dinner invitations during his years of ministry, those mealtime scenes usually ended in provocation, insult, or scandal. Once, a woman of dubious reputation caressed his feet under the table. More than once, he interrupted a meal to heal sick people on the Sabbath. Often, he ate with dirty hands, shared a table with riffraff, and drank more than his enemies considered respectable. Worst of all, he said things, blunt, embarrassing things no one cared to hear. Incidentally, this is why I laugh when I hear people say, it doesn't matter if Jesus was divine or not, all that matters is that he was such a nice person. Um, no, he wasn't. This week's lectionary reading from the Gospel of Luke describes just such a not-nice scene. Jesus is invited for a Sabbath meal by a leader of the Pharisees. Arriving early, he sits and watches as his fellow guests scramble for places of honor around the table. If I'm imagining the scene correctly, they jostle and shove each other, feigning dignity while still fighting for prestigious spots near the host. After observing their drama for a while, Jesus calls them out with a parable. Knowing full well the social rules of his day, he shuns them and calls for a revolution. Not a revolution in arms but a revolution in table manners. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor, he exhorts his fellow guests. Go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If that isn't countercultural enough, Jesus then turns to his host and continues, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Our reading this week doesn't tell us how Jesus' listeners reacted. I don't know if they laughed in discomfort, shook their heads in disbelief, questioned Jesus' sanity, argued back, or followed his advice. All I know is how I react as I read and reread this story. I feel an uncomfortable combination of surprise, skepticism, and fear, as in, really? Is Jesus serious? Does he have any idea what he's asking? It appears he does. Every once in a while, just as I'm growing comfortable with my faith, A story like this one comes along to mess with my complacency. Don't exalt myself. Don't massage my Facebook page to make my life look perfect. Don't judge my worth or the worth of others based on dress size, zip code, academic accomplishments, or professional titles. Don't maximize my social capital at every opportunity. Ignore the pecking order or worse, upend it. Don't network. Don't schmooze. Don't jostle for attention. Open my heart and home to people who can do nothing for me, people I have no affinity for, 
people I can't impress or earn favors from? Why on earth should I do that? Because Jesus insists on it. Because this is what God wants from us. God, the great reverser of our priorities, our hierarchies, and our values. God, who turns us inside out and upside down because there is no end to the miserable human game of who is in and who is out. And God, in his wisdom, knows that our anxious scramble for greatness will lead to nothing but more anxiety, more suspicion, more loneliness, more hatred, and more devastation. Though we have such a hard time believing it, Jesus insists that God's kingdom is not a kingdom of scarcity. It is one of abundance. We're all already welcome, already loved, already known, and already cherished. The currency of that kingdom is humility, not arrogance. Generosity, not stinginess. Hospitality, not fear. The table at the center of that kingdom has so many seats, all of them premier seats, all of them first-class seats, all of them honorable seats, that we don't have to scramble and exhaust ourselves to secure a good spot anymore. But let's face it, humility is a tricky thing. We too easily conflate it with self-effacement, low self-esteem, and complicity in the face of oppression. Even if we manage to define it in healthy ways, humility betrays us. The very instant at which I claim humility is a moment when it eludes me. Worse, very little in our culture rewards or supports the humble. Whether we're talking entertainment, politics, sports, or even religion, we in Western cultures have an unhealthy admiration for the loudest, the biggest, and the greatest. Whether we recognize it or not, we are known around the world for idolizing the superlative. What would happen to our discourse if we shunned the words most and best? What would we have left? The sad truth is that Western cultures, and American culture in particular, is not known around the world for its humility. The sadder truth is that historic Christianity itself, especially as it has been practiced in the West, is not known around the world for its humility. This is a sad and costly state of affairs, a legacy we must own, grieve, and make right. When we dare to gather at Jesus' table, we are actively protesting the culture of upward mobility and competitiveness that surrounds us. There is nothing easy or straightforward about this. It requires hard work over a long period of time. To eat and drink with God is to live in tension with the pecking orders that define our boardrooms, our college admissions committees, our church politics, and our presidential elections. And that can be tiring. But it is what we are called to do, to humble ourselves and place our hope in a radically different kingdom. Jesus asks us to believe that our behavior at the table matters, because it does. Where we sit speaks volumes, and the people whom we choose to welcome reveal the stuff of our souls. Favor the ones who cannot repay you. Prefer the poor. Choose obscurity. This is God's world we live in, and nothing here is ordinary. In the realm of God, the ragged strangers at our doorstep are the angels. For books this week, guest writer Beth Kawasaki reviews Beyond Charlottesville, Taking a Stand Against White Nationalism by Terry McAuliffe. I read this book four days after a mass shooting in Gilroy, California, an agricultural community near my home. By the time I attended a book signing with former Governor Terry McAuliffe seven days later, there had been two more mass shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio. Three shooters in eight days had murdered 34 people and injured 64 more. 
two of these shooters had posted white supremacist content on social media. On August 11th and 12th, 2017, almost exactly two years ago, 35 people were injured and Heather Hare was killed when self-professed neo-Nazi James Alex Fields Jr. plowed them down with his car in Charlottesville, Virginia. The weekend also claimed the lives of McAuliffe's friend and pilot, Lieutenant Jay Cullen, and Trooper Pilot Burke Bates, who were providing video feeds of events from a helicopter when it crashed for unknown reasons. Thus, a caveat. I didn't read this book from a detached distance. I read it with my blood boiling, in one sitting. McAuliffe is an ambitious politician who loves politics and believes in public service. This is evident in his writing, his CV, and in person. His best-selling 2006 book, What a Party, My Life Among Democrats, Presidents, Candidates, Donors, Activists, Alligators, and Other Wild Animals, written when he served as chair of the Democratic National Committee, is a rambunctious and inspiring call to take risks and engage in civic life. In Beyond Charlottesville, McAuliffe writes that he is a Virginian by choice, he was born and raised in Syracuse, and, ever the statesman, he begins his book by sharing some of his accomplishments. He outmaneuvered the state Supreme Court to restore full voting rights to 206,000 convicted felons who had done their time and completed probation. In 2014, the threshold for a crime to be considered a felony was $200. A bad check for $2,001 could lose your voting rights for life. Understanding Virginia State's nuances, why ideas and laws are perpetuated, and who is penalized by them, is a key strength of his new book. In most of the book, McAuliffe details what happened on the state and local level before and during the fateful events in Charlottesville. The city's decision to remove the statue of Robert E. Lee had galvanized over 1,000 white nationalists, supremacists, and neo-Nazis from 35 states to participate in a Unite the Right rally. Leaders of the rally had encouraged attendees to arrive equipped with intimidating torches, posters, flags, shields, and guns. They shouted anti-Jew, Muslim, immigrant, black, LGBTQIA, women, chants. McAuliffe's account is written from a state level and a governor's perspective. He has received mixed reviews from some survivors and locals who were charged with making things go right that day and who dispute where to lay the blame for what went wrong. Others complain that he portrays himself as a white savior. But even the dissenters rally around the pressing need to dig deep, learn from Charlottesville, and then share their wisdom, because during this era, we need to be prepared for more. Beginning on the first page, McAuliffe laments how President Trump, whom he had known earlier as a Democrat, golfer, and wealthy mover and shaker, failed to respond to the victims and the nation in a definitive and presidential manner during his press conference on August 12th. He recalls the morning phone call during which he felt certain that the president would rise to the occasion and act immediately and clearly. But hours later, he was shocked to hear, quote, we condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides, on many sides. Trump later spoke of blame on both sides and very fine people on both sides in response to reporters. Trump's ambiguous many sides approach is what provoked McAuliffe onto the national stage where he displayed a different brand of leadership through his own words in a speech that legendary Congressman John Lewis calls in the foreword, one of the greatest speeches I've heard in my life. For movies this week, Dan reviews, Marcos doesn't live here. According to Time magazine, in the U.S. immigration system, more than 11,800 children from a few months old to 17 are housed in nearly 90 facilities in 15 states. 
they are being held while their parents await immigration proceedings, or, if the children arrive unaccompanied, are reviewed for possible asylum themselves. In fact, this is a billion-dollar-a-year industry. This feature-length PBS independent-lens documentary film examines that immigration system through the lens of a single couple that are separated by deportation. Elizabeth Perez is a 10-year veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps who served in Afghanistan. Her husband, Marcos, an undocumented worker, was deported back to Mexico in 2010 after he ran a yellow light and was turned over to ICE. For five years, her legal efforts to reunite have failed. Should they continue to fight the system after submitting seven petitions, regather in Mexico, move to Canada or even Australia? Elizabeth, Marcos, and their children exemplify the human toll that's taken of the 12 million undocumented immigrants who still live in the shadows of a badly broken system. For more on this subject, see my reviews of the two movies El Norte and Sin Nombre and the two books by Lauren Markham, The Faraway Brothers, Two Young Migrants and the Making of an American Life, and Francisco Cantu, The Line Becomes a River, Dispatches from the Border. And lastly, for poetry this week, Walter Brueggemann's The Noise of Politics. We watch as the jets fly in, with the power people and the money people, the suits, the budgets, the billions. We wonder about monetary policy because we are among the haves, and about generosity because we care about the have-nots. By slower modes, we notice Lazarus and the poor arriving from Africa, and the beggars from Central Europe, and the throng of environmentalists with their vision of butterflies and oil, of flowers and tanks, of growing things and killing fields. We wonder about peace and war, about ecology and development, about hope and entitlement. We listen beyond jeering protesters and soaring jets, and faintly we hear the crumbling of the crucified one, something about feeding the hungry and giving drink to the thirsty, about clothing the naked and noticing the prisoners, more about the least and about holiness among them. We are moved by the mumbles of the gospel, even while we are tenured in our privilege. We are half ready to join the choir of hope, half afraid things might change, and in a third half of our faith, turning to you and your outpouring love that works justice and that binds us each and all to one another. So we pray, amid jeering protesters and soaring jets, come by here and make new, even at some risk, to our entitlements. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for September 1st, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.